So we're in a series uh, on David, King David, one of the most famous, if not the most famous king uh, of the Old Testament, and certainly the greatest king of the Old Testament. In fact, it is David's line, his family line, which Jesus comes from. And Jesus is often referred to as the fulfillment of the ultimate King David. And so uh, Aaron's going to be covering a number of different things from a variety of different texts, but starting in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and then I'll be reading different sections all the way to chapter 23. Obviously not the whole chapter, but sections. So 1 Samuel 18, uh, verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Then in chapter 19, verses 8 to 10. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. And in chapter 20, verses 27 to 33. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. And verse uh, 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Kids, don't repeat that at home. <laughs> Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Then chapter 21, verses 10 to 15. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Then chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down from there to him. 
And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with them about 400 men. And chapter 23, verses 13 and 14. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Calah. And they went wherever they could go. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Calah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Let me pray for you, brother. And now as we hear from your word this morning, as we hear from the story of David, would you give your servant Aaron great wisdom and courage uh, as well. Would you open our hearts? Would you soften them so that we may hear what you have to say to us personally through your Holy Spirit, but also that we would have the courage and the wisdom and the understanding to obey what we hear. We are listening, Lord. Would you speak to us? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Trevor. Well, if you don't know me, my name's Aaron, and I am the lead pastor here. I love this church. Uh, the story that has unfolded over eight years is one that I couldn't write, and I like it that much more because of that. And part of that is all these relationships that we've been able to build and, and we celebrate. And uh, we're going to celebrate something as a church uh, that, that is unique. It, it's not our own, and yet it is. Uh, we share a church office with Summit Church. They're partnered with us as friends and in our denomination. Uh, and we've mourned with them. We've grieved with them as their lead pastor, Drew. His son was diagnosed at the age of four with stage four cancer some time ago. And uh, earlier this week, I saw him pacing the office in tears. And when you see that, your heart sinks. And I grabbed him. I was like, What's, what's going on? And he said, Aaron, my, my son this morning has been declared cancer-free. And uh, uh, I don't share that to steal their joy. I share that because I'm sharing in it. And so church, two things. One, we want to celebrate. So if you know the Johnson family, if you know Summit, we want them to know we are walking with them. We love them. We are, we are celebrating with them. In fact, I gave their staff permission. Sunday, you need to celebrate because their boss ran away. He's like, I have to be with my family. And I went, go party. And, and we want to do the same. And so, but also pray for them. Uh, their son has to continue the final treatments uh, of his chemotherapy just to kind of finish the round and make sure everything's good. And so the family's happy, but their son is still really sick. Uh, so we are praying with them, we're celebrating with them, and we love that we can do that. And I would add one more thing to all the housekeeping announcements we shared. Um, the difference between what we see on the screen and we hear and celebrate about what God's doing in our offices week to week uh, through the Ukrainian ministry is, is only language. We're, we're the same church. And I didn't really invite you, this feels like the right move through an ESL opportunity because I, I remember Corey and I, we went and sat in a service and I encourage you to do that. I mean, maybe not now, because, like, breathing room is limited. Uh, <laughs> but if there wasn't an interpreter whispering the message in my ear, and by the way, Bodan, he can preach, or, or the interpreter can correct well. <laughs> but if that wasn't there, I, I would have felt 
completely isolated and, and even intellectually stifled. Like, like there's something wrong with me. And that was such a good experience that just stirred in my heart to go, we got to figure that out. And so if you'd like to get involved in that, I'd strongly encourage it. Uh, I look forward to seeing that grow. I think it's just ripe. In fact, we are in conversations here to move that ministry into this building so it can continue to grow. So please pray into those things. So much good stuff to share. Um, I, uh, I, I'm also cognizant that we, we just skipped like a, a stone across the pond over about six chapters in the Bible. Now, if you're new to the church or if the first time visiting or maybe visiting in a while, that's very uncommon for us. We like to look at about a chapter or so at a time and really walk slowly through Scripture. That's a value for us, expounding what it says, uh, conveying the truth of the text. And you might be wondering, why is it that we just did this quick breezing through so much Scripture this morning and simply to convey one thing? That if we are in a series looking at the life of David, which to this point has taught us that God does not see us as we see us, that God is instructing us that we don't see things properly, that includes things like last week we talked about our fear, and this week our difficult circumstance, I wanted to show you that the life of David is deeply familiar with difficulty. I say this repeatedly in private, now I get to say it in public, if you are a person going through difficulty and you don't know where to go to in scripture, I invite you, I commend you to go look at the life of David. You will find deep solace and a lot of material. You'll get his prayer journal in the Psalms. You'll get his life story repeated uh, both in First and Second Samuel and in the Chronicles. You, you'll get this picture of there is a man here who is acquainted with hardship. And there is much to glean from it. And I simply wanted to convey one thing. This was not a snapshot in his life. This was a long and drawn out season in his life. In fact, we landed in the end of chapter 23 saying, and Saul pursued him every day. That's just the beginning. You see, today we want to talk about how we are to see, how God instructs us to see our difficulty and our difficult circumstances. We want to talk about the persistence of our difficult circumstances. We want to talk about how we seek purpose in that and as well as our perspective. Now, let me quickly recap because we covered so much text. We've missed so much. Let me bring you back from where we were in the story to where we are now. Um, we are moving beyond chapter 18. And in chapter 18, it's, we've stepped out of this debut of David and his rise to public fame. He's conquered the giant champion, Goliath. And everyone has now heard the name and is learning the name and is praising the name of David. This guy can do no wrong. In fact, if I were to summarize the story to this point, it has been the Holy Spirit rushes on David so David can rush into battle to make his rush to public acclaim. And in that moment, everyone's excited. We see God's favor is heavy on David. In fact, it's a montage of years of highlights that God's favor is resting on David and David is growing in his acclaim and his presence and his authority and his leadership amongst the people. And then by contrast, we see the heart and deterioration of Saul. And it's all captured well in what we read, but essentially it's this moment where he comes into the city and the women are singing. And by the way, wouldn't you just love where people spontaneously burst into song when you arrive? 
Ladies, let me dispel something as a mystery. Your husbands would love that. You have returned home. I'm so happy. I won't sing. And the women sing and they say this. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And essentially the thought process, the deterioration of Saul's thought life is this. What good is it being second place? In fact, he says this. What more could he have than the kingdom? And when it says in the text, verse 9, Saul eyed him from that day on. That's, that's essentially from that day on. Saul could not view anything in his life apart from the comparison of David. You see, everything in this story is building to to help us understand the deep conflict and difficulty that David is about to walk into. In fact, we're going to see that everybody loves David. Even the king's son, who gives him his sword as if to say, David, command me. David, I will serve you. I am heir, but you are the rightful heir you before me. And his daughter is going to be smitten and loves this guy. And, and, and Saul gives her into marriage and he becomes a legitimate son-in-law to the king. And all this is building to the point where the reader can almost give a nod and go, I can see how God's plan is going to come to be. David is like a stone's throw from the throne. I could see how his circumstances could move and and he would fulfill God's promise and become the next king of Israel. This is all working out for the good except for the wickedness, the deterioration, the jealousy, and the anger that is building in Saul and it all comes crumbling apart and moves in such distance that we begin as a reader to go, how could this come to be? How could it come to pass where God's promise that David would be the next king could ever happen? In fact, we're going to see Saul move so far. In fact, there's, there's things that we didn't get to read that I encourage you. Go back and read these in entirety for yourself. Where he becomes not a king of rejoicing and celebrating. He is a king of political intrigue and conspiracy. Where he actually uses the bridal price. I'm not even going to mention what it is, but some of you know because you're familiar with your Bibles, but there's kids in the room. But he says, go and, go and fetch this for me and you can have my daughter. And, the, and the, the price is such that, you know what, David surely will die trying to get it. His heart is twisted. And it moves from conspiracy to outright rage. Where, you know, by the way, good thing Saul is terrible with a spear. Because <laughs> if you read the text, multiple times he's throwing a spear at somebody and he misses. Throws it at David, but he throws it at his own son. You've sided with the enemy, David. And he calls down curses on him. Essentially, he's saying this, you're a traitor. You're no son to me because you've thrown your lot in with David. And he says, don't you understand that what more could he have than the kingdom? What more could he have than your inheritance? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. We see the heart of Saul is revealed in that moment. He is desperate to cling to his leadership and his kingship, and he'll do anything to do so. And the one thing that in his mind will solidify that is if David's dead. And he moves to outright antagonism, hunting, bloodlust for David. 
and David flees. You know, and again, think of this quick rise and ascent to prominence, favor, power, and the plummet down into the depths. David is running for his life. And we just, I took the snapshots that are in scripture to simply convey this. This was not one event, but many events. Sometimes the difficult seasons in your life persist for a long time. Sometimes the hits just keep coming. Sometimes your lows have even greater lows. And David was familiar with that. In fact, chapter 22, we didn't even have time to read it, but it says something about Saul's heart, and then just it's gut-wrenching for the reader. David's running for his life. He gets a ba- uh, he's, uh, sorry, he's aided by a priest to have some food for him and those who are in his company. And when Saul finds out, he goes and he kills the priest in cold blood and 85 of his attendants. And we would read that to go, there, is there nothing that would stop this king from pursuing David? Is there nothing that would make him feel safe? And David is fleeing for his life, even to the point where he runs to his enemies, going, better to be amidst the enemies that I have fought against than to be in the home of the one I fought for. If you didn't catch it when he says he goes to the, to a, the king of Gath, that, that's Goliath's hometown. They're like, don't we know this guy? And he pretends to be mad. And then he runs to the cave of Adullam, Adullam, I don't care what you call it, but he runs to a cave that was well known. It was a fortified uh, natural fortress in the rock where hundreds of people could go and hide if they needed. And he goes there not just to hide away for a while. That's where he makes his, his home. Arguably speaking, and although scholars would disagree on exact dates, it's from his early adulthood to his middle years, David is running for his life. David is more accustomed to living in the wilderness, fearful of his life, than he is that of living in palaces like kings. Just a foreshadow, spoiler alert, there'll come a point in the story where David's going to pray to the Lord, Lord, it's not right that I get to sleep in a palace and you're in a tent. We should make you a home that is worthy of your name. Do you know why he thought that? Because he's somebody who didn't take the palace for granted. When he finally got a nice bed, he went, boy, this is great. Because I've been sleeping in caves a long time. Sometimes, and I know this first point is a bit of a downer, but it needs to be said because a Christian faith is a realistic faith. Scripture is, invites us to deal with the complexities of life, and it's simply this. Sometimes the difficult circumstances in your life persist, and they persist a really long time. And the judge, the verdict of your faithfulness is not whether or not That is a short period or a long period, but whether or not you remain. See, I would encourage you this way, that we we do this horrible thing where we look on somebody's life and if they're going through difficulty and that difficulty seems to linger on and on and on and on, we almost uh, seem to create an understanding inside of ourselves as if to justify it to go, well, surely they're doing something wrong. They must be adding to their problem. 
That, that must be them. Maybe they were disobedient to God. Maybe God is really wanting this for them. Maybe they just really need to repent or figure out their life or, or come to some sort of understanding. But here we have a picture of David who's done nothing wrong. There's nothing in this story that would cause us to think, you know what, David did one fatal mistake and now he's on the run for his life. You know what, you can be completely in the center of God's will, obedient to what he's called to do, living as his chosen person, and yet still walk through long and difficult periods of adversity. In fact, if if you're a parent, I want to give you a picture of something that will help you understand long seasons of difficulty in your life. You see, as a Christian, we're uniquely equipped for this. Because even though we might not know when this is going to end, we know that it's going to end. And if you're a parent, you've had this conversation a million times with your kids, when you're inviting them into difficulty, knowing that it's, it's for a short period or a short season, because at the end of it, there's going to be something great, and they just can't see it. I remember the first time we took our kids to Disneyland, we were like, you know what, there's going to be a plane ride, and there's going to be about a three-hour drive, but then at the end, Disneyland. Do you think they cared? No. <laughs> as soon as the plane lands, you know, it's like they're rejoicing. Oh, that was so difficult. <laughs> we're going to the rental car place, and they're like, oh, we're going to be at Disneyland in three hours. Tears, arguing, threats from their father. I'm going to turn this car around. No concept that this short season, although it might seem long, although it might seem meaningless, although it might seem beyond their capacity, will end. We know that this is true. At the end of the end, we will no longer have difficulty. We will celebrate. I can't help but look back on my friend Drew's story. I remember, and I was saying this to a friend of mine earlier today, I, I I remember when he received the news about his son, I was with him. And I remember he had this look on his face that just didn't make sense. And I was like, what are you thinking? He's like, I just, I just feel like God's going to bring this together and my son's going to be healed. And I don't know who to tell that to because it, I know it sounds crazy. And then to see him this week, tears on his face, almost in disbelief. I, I wish I had the connection at that moment to be like, but Didn't you know that this was going to be okay? Didn't you know that this undetermined, deeply hard, prolonged season of suffering for you and your family would eventually have an end and that end would be okay? Because Jesus loves you and he loves your family and he loves your son? By the way, I'm going to remind him of that this week. Church, we can encourage each other that way, but we need to encourage each other with this understanding. Sometimes life allows for, has, and we walk through persistent periods of difficulty. And one of the things that we cling to, or we we want to cling to, we look for when we're in difficulty, is we want to find answers to the why. What is the purpose behind this? And let me speak to some dangers before I speak to how we walk through this. I've seen this too many times as Christians, or in church communities, We walk through difficult seasons and we just want to ascribe meaning to it right away. 
as if God has thrown us into adversity because there's really something he wants to straighten out in our life or a lesson we got to learn or something that's, uh, that he's really trying to equip us for. In fact, if you've grown up in the church, you might have heard testimonies of people who have these crazy lives and they get saved and then they make these crazy U-turns following Jesus. And then if you've kind of had a fairly normal, mundane, or even boring life, you're like, oh, maybe my story isn't very valuable. I should go do some crazy things so that God can work in me too. (laughs) And I'm saying that not tongue-in-cheek, but you know what? Pray for your kids because they will feel that. You know, is the value of what Jesus is doing in me as valuable as that person? Yes. And praise God if you don't have to go through that hardship. But if you do, he still loves you. We try to ascribe meaning before we, we might not even have understanding or the ability to see what it is. You see, we look at this story and there's, there's no meaning. There's no purpose. Now, you, you can speculate. You can add it in, you can add some commentary and color, but the the text itself does not provide us any purpose for this apart from the bloodlust and anger and sinful posture of a king whose thought life deteriorated to this. If I can't take out David, there's nothing left for me. In fact, there's been many times where I've had people come into my office or phone me up for a meeting and they share the difficulty they're going through and they say, okay, pastor, now tell me why it's happening. And they don't like my response because I often say something like this. You know, often in scripture, we have more examples of difficulty and hard seasons for people's lives and we have no reason why. I take them to a guy named Job who never gets to see beyond the the curtain uh, uh, that we see as a reader to understand why and, and the purpose and the meaning and the value of all the difficulty he goes through and how at the end it all works out. He doesn't see any of that. All he knows is that he's gone through the worst of the worst of life can offer. And David's story is the same. You know, we try to ascribe meaning that sometimes just isn't there. Really, it's we've been given difficulty to walk through. How will you walk it? Now, I know some of you are like, man, this sermon is a bit of a downer. (laughs) First two points out of the gate. Haven't been uplifting yet. But I want to begin to make a pivot here. Because not only is these... Is that true? Allowing scripture to be realistic, helping us through the complexities of life, allowing you to breathe a little bit when everything feels bad and we don't have to ascribe meaning to it. You know, and and sometimes we do this where we go, well, that person's life is going really well. God must really love them. That person's life is not going really well. They must have done something bad. David's at the center of God's will. Everything in this story is showing us that God's favor is lavishly poured over his life and yet he is running in fear for his life with a very real threat of a king who's neglecting his duties to chase after him with all his resources simply because he's going, this is the only way forward for me. Some years ago I was invited to, or I was asked to to officiate a funeral for a family in the community. They had no religious or faith background and they didn't want support for the family. They didn't want graveside services. They just said we needed somebody to officiate a bit of a gathering for them, friends and family, and asked if I could do that and I agreed. And it was 
it stands out to me, and I've probably shared this with some of you personally, it's one of the most bizarre experiences I've ever had because usually in those moments, you know, as a pastor, you, you do these things from time to time, you kind of have a playbook. The family is going through the same emotions and, and, and confusion and heartache and you bring the same passages and words of comfort and posture of care and yet I walked into a room where people were stoic and the siblings came to me and said, you know, our brother wasn't a real great guy. And when we share the eulogy, we're going to let people know. Now, uh, a younger Aaron didn't catch that. I went, okay. And I heard a eulogy about how bitter, how hard, how selfish, how difficult, and how not very sorry a family was to have lose their brother, their son, their loved one. And I got to preach after that. And I remember... In this weird moment, I found, I found out that the story was that this gentleman had passed away in a climbing accident, left behind a, an estranged wife and daughter who I got to speak to after the service. And it set apart from the mood of everyone else in the room who was angry, who was upset. They, they seemed to have a peace about them. And so I went and talked to them. And I said, I'd, I'd love to know a little bit more about this, about this man that we've, we've, we've spoken to and, and, and who we've, we've said goodbye to today. And, and I know that there's a lot of heartache. I know that there's a lot of anger here. And, and you know what she said to me? Speaking to his estranged spouse. We had fought and we had hardship and we had difficulty, but I received a voicemail the day he went hiking probably minutes before he had an accident. And the voicemail said this, Honey, I'm sorry for everything I've done. When I get home, I want to make things right. I look forward to seeing you. And my heart wrenched. And yet she had gladness because she said, But you know what? I'm so glad the voicemail got through because between him and I, we're good. For those who are in Christ, the message gets through. No matter what you're going through, we're good. No matter how hard this is, I'm with you. In fact, we receive the purpose, not that we should put on the text, but the purpose that, that David puts into his difficulty when we read through what is essentially his prayer journal in the Psalms, when he writes many things over and over again, we see his anguish. Oh God, where are you? Why are you so far from me? Why can't I find you? When I seek you, you are gone. But they almost always end on a note of, but then in my darkness, in my heartache, in my suffering, I know that you are there. In fact, I wanted to read for you, just briefly, Psalm 59. This is the comparison text to chapter 18 of our reading, where men are literally waiting outside his door at the, at the king's command to take his life. And he says this, each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. 
Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. The one thing that got through to David's heart was this. God, why is this happening? God, why are you allowing this? God, where are you right now? I don't even understand. But I do know this. When I run, you run with me. When I hide, you're there with me. When I feel lost, you are my fortress and my strength. You see, we might not not always know the purpose, but we are at least given a new perspective. Again, I want to remind you that the title of the sermon is How We Ought to See Difficult Times. Not the purpose we ascribe to difficult times. I don't want you to pick an arbitrary lesson and go, that's what I got to learn. As if I can just push my way through. I think so often we go, God, if you were to just explain to me why this is happening, then I can focus myself and it won't be so bad. Perhaps that's the reason you're not getting any explanation. I want you to endure. And we might not be given a purpose, but we're given perspective. And that perspective is this. I love you. No matter what comes, I'm with you. Difficulty does not equal my displeasure. I want you to see your circumstances through new lenses. You see, God might not want you to walk through difficult things, but he never wastes difficulty in our lives. So please do not equate the formula in the wrong way. God wants you to go through difficulty to change you and equip you. No, God allows your difficulty to change you and equip you. In fact, perhaps some of those lessons, perhaps some of that perspective change is very obvious in the text that we read. Again, look at verse 21, 10 to 15, where David had to break down old constructs, old ideas, ways of thinking that they would be refashioned. This is, this is David hiding out amongst his enemies, pretending to be a madman, going, I hope they don't recognize me, and if they do, I hope they don't see me as a threat. A shadow of himself. And in that space, perhaps David became aware that, you know what, don't forget what it is to be a nobody because it was the Lord who made you a somebody. This can be ripped away in a moment. But if it can be ripped away in a moment, it can be restored in a second. Too often I hear this. And I hear, can, I just want to say this. We are in a unique season as Christians in the Western church where the vast amount of pastors I know, they're deeply discouraged, questioning why they're doing what they're doing. Some of that's healthy because sometimes we've been doing things for the wrong reasons. But now conflicted with, okay, we either have to do this for the right reasons or we shouldn't do it at all. And in that space, I often hear things like, it's just not as good as it was. People aren't as excited. We're not growing like we used to. We're not seeing the fruit of what God could be doing in people's lives as they're being transformed and coming to faith in him. And so they're throwing up their hands in the air. And in those moments, I, I, I actually wonder at times, is it because we thought we've fallen from what we thought was such a comfortable and enjoyable place that God can't possibly do a work again? Our perspective needs to be this. We're on the winning team no matter what inning we're playing in. 
And that's a baseball thing if you're hockey people. Okay? What period you're playing in. So I don't care if the scoreboard looks completely bleak and impossible. We know that our team's going to pull out ahead. Moreover, if we look at verse, or chapter 22, verse 1 and 2. Again, this is David running to the caves. And again, these caves were not necessarily hidden places. They were well known. These were natural fortresses in the cave systems in that area. And the reason Saul was kind of like, I know where he is, but I don't know how to get him, was they were well defended, easily defended by a small group of people where one or two could slip in and out and and overwhelm or escape enemy forces where hundreds of people could hide out in these cave systems. They're amazing. In fact, in that moment, what do we see? It is the distress, the bitter in soul, the in debt that they come to David and he becomes their commander. Now, you could look at that with a pessimistic view and go, great, I'm now general of all the losers. (laughs) Or you could understand what the text is trying to convey. All those who are also walking through difficulty rallied to David. You know, when I think of the history of this church, and and we have begun to build, and, and it's coming back over and over to myself and our elders team, a church that has built a hospital. In fact, I bumped into somebody earlier this week and, and was just mentioning the church that I work and serve at and they're like, I've heard of you guys. You support other churches. You do great work like that. And, I, and part of me loves that and I was just like, God, where did that happen? And the answer was simple. Aaron, when you planted, you needed a hospital so you built one. And hurt people started to show up. David, isn't it possible that I needed you to know and I want you to learn what it is to command through difficulty so that you'll command well when life is easy and good? Saul never learned that lesson. In fact, in their distress, they come and, and they find purpose. They find perspective. They find a, a commander in David. Fun fast forward and foreshadowing. If you were to go to 2 Samuel verse 23, these are the beginnings of David's mighty men. And if you don't know that, fun chapter for you to read. That 400 in one chapter turns into 600, and of that 600, we see that roughly 300 of them were a force that was so tough and recognizing about 30 of them that were so amazing that they had accolades that matched even that of the moment of David and Goliath's height in battle. So loyal to David that when David's like, guys, I'm thirsty, they're like, we'll go pound through enemy forces to go to a well that's well guarded so that you can have a glass of water. And if you're a guy, you're like, oh, I love this. Is it possible that in your difficulty, God's going, no, no, no. I want to bring to you people who are going to be transformed into something new. You see, again, the Lord doesn't waste difficulty. He doesn't let you sit in a place of going, I don't know how this happened and I don't know what to do. He allows us to have perspective. And here's the beauty of of what we receive as followers of Jesus. We know this that our 
that our true king has gone through greater difficulty and adversity than we could ever imagine, that we know that we can make it out the other side as well. In fact, Isaiah 53 says this. It says this of the suffering servant, which points to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that he was rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces and were despised, and we esteemed him not. See, Jesus knew and experienced and understood all the difficulty of our human lives, that it persists, that sometimes we don't see its purpose, but we are given a new perspective. And I, I would encourage you with this, that he was crushed, sorry, he was crushed for us so that he would be numbered for, with us, that we might be numbered with him. It's a picture that we find in the text itself, Isaiah 53, verse 11, that out of his, the anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied. In other words, it says this, because he suffered, he can look back on his work and find satisfaction in what it's completed. Through his suffering, he's invited us to gain in his victory. Through his suffering, he's invited us to find the end of ours, to find meaning in ours, to find hope in ours, to find a friend in ours, to find a fortress. And Jesus went to the ultimate cave, a tomb cut out of a rock, to be hidden away from false accusations, pursued even unto death, where he moved from death into life in the resurrection. And as he emerges as the resurrected king, scripture would say this, you share in all that work. That was the cave where you were transformed with him. Church, I want to encourage us this way. If you're walking through difficult times right now, and I, in a room this big, I know that I'm speaking to some of you. And if you know Christ, and, and, and perhaps one of the things that we tend to do in difficulty is we look to all of our resources and all the things that we're comfortable. We, we exhaust ourselves until we run up empty, and then we try things like, you know, perhaps I should come to the Lord in prayer. To go to him first. Where you're allowed to pray like David does. God, this makes no sense. Psalm 142 is David's prayer in the caves. And he says, is there anyone here for me? Is there anyone who cares? Is there anyone who will stand with me? It, you know, he's disregarding 400. And he says, oh yeah, but there's one. God, and that's you. And in that place, he finds comfort. That dear Christian, perhaps today, you need to be reminded of that to find comfort. And there'll be a prayer team after the service. We'd love to pray for you in that. We'd love to share with you in your heartache. We'd like to celebrate you when that suffering is over and in your wins. And for those of you who don't know Christ, I, I invite you to the cave to see that there's no difficulty that you will face that supersedes or is beyond the understanding of what he has gone, for, gone through for you. That you would share in that and have life in him. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word and I love the story that is the life of David. And, and Jesus, I thank you that there's a picture of he as an anointed one. That means chosen, set apart, beloved and given purpose is exactly the same picture 
that is given to all those who by faith accept you as their king. To be chosen, set apart, and given great purpose. So Jesus, we can see these things not as our life being laid on top of that story, that story being laid on top of our life, but Lord, we can see ourselves in the text to the degree of, Lord, we also walk through difficulty and need new perspective to know that you are with us, to know that you love us, to know that you will bring us through, and Lord, to know that there is nothing in this life and the difficulties we face that is beyond you as well. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.